You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Well, hello, everyone. It's John Spurisavet and Rebecca Rosenthal. Hey, Rebecca. Hi, John. Nice to see you. Good to see you. We are seeing each other on Zoom, actually, while we record. <laughs> and uh, as I was telling you offline, Rebecca, I got a nice compliment about our previous episode uh, from my daughter, who's in college, about uh, motivation, and uh, which I attribute to you. She can listen to me talk anytime. <laughs> it's so nice that she listens, and she's not just like, oh, this crazy thing my dad is doing. <laughs> yes, and uh, which is kind of a good sign. So that we're gonna what we're doing here for the end of season one that we're getting to is uh, this podcast will be about the actual episode 13. Chapter 13 is called Michael's Gambit. And then uh, next time we'll do kind of a, a zoom out on the season where we'll try to get as many of our hosts together as possible and also throw in some special features. I'd love to talk to, uh, as I mentioned before, some youth, including my my daughter and and other people. And uh, we'll take a look back. And I have to say, like, I was I'm like particularly petrified about this episode because it is so much it's fun and it's about plot and advancing the show, maybe more than a lot of new ethical philosophies. So, uh, so we'll see. You want to give us a summary, Rebecca? Sure. Sean and Michael inform the four humans that they have 30 minutes to decide which two will go to the bad place and then disappear behind the clown doors of Eleanor's house. Eleanor proposes that she and Jason go because they are the two mistakes but Jason wants to stay with Janet and argues that Chidi should go because he murdered Janet. Eleanor sticks to her position, but as she and Jason are about to leave, real Eleanor enters and offers to take one place since Chidi does not love her and she does not want to stay without a soulmate. This sparks more arguing, which descends into chaos, at which point Eleanor has an epiphany. They are, in fact, in the bad place already. She explains to Michael and Sean that everyone is already torturing each other, and Michael responds with a diabolical laugh. Michael flashes back to his initial proposal for a new kind of bad place and explains that everything was going according to plan until Eleanor's public confession. Michael proposes to Sean to reboot the experiment by erasing the human's memories, making some tweaks, and starting over. While they discuss it, Eleanor, thinking fast, puts a note in Janet's mouth. In the middle of her telling Michael, you basic, he snaps his fingers and starts everything over. When Eleanor awakens, Janet gives her a note that says, find Chidi. So uh, how did, how, did you just rewatch the episode for uh, before we got together this week? Yes, I rewatched it the other night. Um, and actually, my husband was watching with me on the couch. And I we were both just cracking up at various points <laughs> because you forget, like, this is a really serious episode. A lot happens, but it's also very funny. It really is. And I, I realized I hadn't watched it since the first time I had watched this episode. And I brought, I made reference to my uh, my 14-year-old daughter, Serena, my youngest, who is uh, the greatest companion to watch anything slapsticky. And uh, she was really, she did not disappoint. She was laughing the whole time. <laughs> I have to say, I was noting some of the things which are so subtle, like Early on, when Michael is uh, talking about kind of reviewing the fact that they've gotten the situation, and I think somehow I blew it when he's describing how the design and what was supposed to ha uh, happen, how did they get to this mess? You can see this little smirk on his face, which in retrospect is the first time he's sort of giving away facially like, oh my God, this is so awesome. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, you 
if you've been watching the show carefully, which we obviously have, you start to see all of the threads really come together in, in this episode. And I especially love the kind of flashbacks to the bad place and how it's just like a complete stereotype of a corporate office. And, <laughs> and you can, you can kind of tell that Mike sure has, has worked on other office based comedies uh, before. Cause he just really knows he has that kind of idea and he, he really gets the horror potentially of, of <laughs> office work. And when the demon comes in and says, I thought I reserved this conference room. And he's like, no, we have until three. And he's like, Oh, okay. And he goes away. It's just, it's great. And that, and the, the gag about the coffee black being regular <laughs> and orange being antimatter. And she says, you know, French vanilla antimatter. Why do they have to flavor it? It's just great. Like, it's just, it's, it's the little tweaks that just are so brilliant. Yes, and that sort of send up of his sales pitch, and you know, sure we could torture them in the, all the regular ways. And I think I think Sean says something about um, what's the line about uh, pulling teeth? You know, uh, oh shoot, I have to. I wrote, I scribbled this down. It was where he was looking for a metaphor where pulling teeth was the meta- doing this would be like pulling teeth. <laughs> was, anyway, I have to cut that out. I didn't didn't nail the line there. <laughs> I noticed that in the uh, in the flashbacks to the uh, to corporate headquarters, Michael is wearing a regular tie and not his his standard bow tie. Mm. Perhaps he thinks the bow tie is more jaunty and good place like, whereas the regular tie is just more serious. I don't know. I don't have a lot of bow tie related experience. <laughs> I, I you know other than tuxedo related, I certainly don't either. But, uh, my uh, dad wears a bow tie a lot. I should ask him what what when he decides to wear a bow tie and when he decides to wear a regular tie. <laughs> uh, I don't know. The I watch my one of the other shows I watch is NCIS and there's a whole bit of a story on one of the characters there, Dr. Mallard, the Scottish medical examiner who wears a bow tie, but it turns out in his previous life, he hated bow ties, like his life before he uh, took on this career. Uh, but I thought it was all these little uh, visual things. I mean, this, this show, we forget how how visually sumptuous the show is with all the, the, the bright colors of uh, the Good Place neighborhood. Well, the best visual gag, I think, in this episode is when Michael is leaving them to decide who's going to go to the bad place. And he says, this is the saddest day of my life. And then the clown doors close (laughs) right in front of his face. It's just the most hilarious moment. And also like, now that you know that Michael is a demon who, you know, presumably lives forever when he says, you know, this is the saddest day of my life. You think to yourself, really, truly, this is the saddest day. Um, It's just so funny. And they really use all of those, all of those visual cues to great effect. <laughs> I think that you know, early on, they really start getting it when they're discussing how to make this decision of who's going. And uh, and Jason, after first saying that uh, we should approach this issue uh, ethnically, which Chidi corrects, ethically, um, launches into his uh, utilitarian consequentialist analysis. And I think Chidi has one it like, we haven't heard a real like good Chidi line, I think, for a couple episodes, but he's like, you know, the one day in class you listened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually this episode is where a lot of sort of the we see a lot of the regular gags. We have Chidi with like my brain will break, my stomach hurts. We have Janet and her, you know, not a robot, not a girl. Yeah. A lot of those kind of recurring things come back in this episode, which I guess is like very season finale uh appropriate. But 
I think the great cheating moment is when he decides that the reason he's in the bad place is because <laughs> he drank almond milk and it's bad for the environment. Um, and then uh, either Michael or Sean says to him, no, it's because you hurt everyone with your rigidity and inability to make a decision. Right. And, and it's just, he can't see his own worst flaw necessarily, right? Even though it kind of eats him up inside, it's hard for him to say, yes, the reason I'm in this bad place is actually because I've been torturing everyone on earth all the time with my inability to make a decision. And honestly, in that moment, I related to all of Chidi's friends because people who have a hard time making a decision and go back and forth and round and round. It drives me nuts. I'm just like, <laughs> this is like something. <laughs> oh, there's so much to talk about with that. <laughs> I have become, and I probably talk about this in the, in our season end uh, special, uh, I've become such a Jason connoisseur over this season. So there's the straight up gag where in the middle of all these conversations, he and Janet are, every time he says something, they kiss. And it's this like uh, delightful, simple moment. We did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then also he's in this whole thing. He goes after Chidi, like you killed my wife. And, you know, he's like, I was trying to, st I was trying to stop you from doing it. He's like, you killed, killed her. <laughs> and he's just well, ready to. There's probably a moral philosophy question in there too. If you killed someone while you were trying to stop someone else from killing them, you know, who is morally, more morally <laughs> responsible there. Yeah. And I, I think we get, it's good. Cause we get, you know, we've been really, Jason has been very much his, you know, pure soul, but he really, um, he's looking for every possible, like, uh, philosophical justification for getting exactly what he wants. Well, well, Eleanor is, you know, she does not waver at all from the, it's clear that I'm going, it's just a question of which of the rest of you are, are going. And she's, she kind of plays the straight, I must say straight man, that's not really the right term. Um, although my favorite El Eleanor line probably is the whole thing where she's describing um, each of their nature since she's describing Tahani as uh, whatever characteristics of her and then she says something like side note I might I might I might legit be into Tahani <laughs> yeah. it's just one of those things you see you talk, like so many of these you see them coming and they're like yeah but it's still so funny it's, uh, yeah. well I, I I love the moment in this episode where Jason says you know where Eleanor says we're in the we're in the bad place and Jason says I told you that first night that they that we were in a prank show and he and Eleanor high five <laughs> that somehow Jason kind of he was almost that's the thing about Jason like in so many moments he's almost there he didn't fully get it he thinks they're in a prank show but he kind of he got the essence of the issue which was which was uh great he's such a great character and you think oh he's so simple-minded and empty-headed and I know you and Sari were talking last week about which one is which of the four Passover children, yeah. right? And I think people look at Jason as maybe the simple child, maybe the one who doesn't know how to ask. But, you know, he he lays it all out there. He knows what he wants. He doesn't want to go to the bad place. He wants to stay with Janet. And I think some of us in our, in our most honest moments are Jason. We don't want to go to the bad place. That's yeah. not where we want to go. We want to stay. We want to be with the people that we love, and we do not want to get sent to the bad place. Much has been made, I think, in the uh, general commentary on the show on Ted Danson's terrific physical performance in the in the show. Uh, the laugh, I understand that the laugh, like the the when Eleanor confronts him with like she's figured it out, and he his like diabolical laugh. I think they must have had like I don't know fifteen or twenty tries till he felt like he really had the exactly thing that he wanted to do so i was looking forward to that and then he kind of crumples up in that chair with that gangly 
you know, thing. He's so powerful, and yet he's also such a mess. And of course, he's got the boss, you know, Sean there, who he's uh, he's really between a rock and a hard place. And they just love watching him do that. This is another side note, but you know, uh, Sean, the actor who plays Sean, is in the Babysitters Club reboot on Netflix, the Babysitters Club TV oh, show. Oh yeah, yeah. And every time I see him, I'm like, wait a minute, you're Demon Sean. You're not like nice. And he plays like this completely overprotective, slightly neurotic dad of one of the girls in the babysitter's club. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're a demon. Like, he's just so good in that part. It's hard to see him in any other part. And and there are actors for whom that's always true for me. But he in particular, when he shows up in other places, I'm like, no, 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 you're a demon, Sean. I'm sorry. Yeah. I love when people can can do can do range. And speaking of acting, I have to say, since I live with, uh, you know, youth in theater, I just love this whole thing of Vicky's with her, you know, <laughs> coming in for her, her big moment that she rehearsed for. And it's like, no, nah, it's all, we, we don't need you. Go, go away. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's great as, as real Eleanor slash Vicky. And that's the, the funniest thing that, you know, obviously we've been calling her real Eleanor for this entire time. And yet she is just as fake as other Eleanor. She's she's demon Eleanor, if you're going to be precise about it, or demon Vicky. But uh, it's just interesting to that that we think of her as real Eleanor. Um, and in fact, it is revealed only Eleanor is real Eleanor. <laughs> and the actor there, Tia Sarkar, I heard her interviewed on the podcast, which is hosted by by Sean, by Mark Evan Jackson. And, and she got discovered, I got into the universe of the show, I forget if we've talked about this in her first appearance, that she actually auditioned for Tahani. And I guess, you know, she wasn't tall. She wasn't, she didn't have that, what we now consider the the classic Tahani characteristics, but they're like, uh, uh, we got to keep this one around somehow. And it was a, a great lesson, especially for people, I guess, going into theater or uh, TV and film, you know, you got to just put yourself out there and you'll end up landing perhaps uh, the part you're supposed to have, even if it's not the part you auditioned for. I'm looking at my, I this time I had to write my notes in the, scribble on a piece of paper and that's so i'm trying to like trying to read them make sure i always write my notes and scribble on a piece of paper <laughs> i don't know my scribble is way <laughs> it's really hard to read oh cut that out any other things you want to uh fan fan you on before we go yeah I, I i guess and maybe this will lead us into our conversation about the jewish text pieces that we're we're bringing here but the eleanor cheating moment when she thinks she's going to the bad place and she gives him a hug and she says like it's been real dog. That's how I've ended many of my serious relationships. <laughs> and then she says, I was dropped into a cave and you were my flashlight. And it's just such a poignant metaphor. You know, Judaism obviously has like a lot of cave related analogies and, and discussions. And what does it mean to, to be in a cave and, and to, and also to find light in the darkness and, and especially in this, I, I guess we're recording this two days after the after the solstice and just this idea of the light increasing is such an important part of, of Jewish thought and that we should always bring more light to the world. That's what we say about Hanukkah, that we increase the light every night because that brings more holiness to the world. And so that was just like, it was such a brilliant, good place moment because it combines sort of the funny comedic piece and the like real truth of Eleanor learning that she needs someone else in the world. It can't just be her trying to figure everything out. She needed Chidi to, to be her flashlight. And um, you, you must be a West Wing fan, right? Are you a West Wing fan? I am. Oh yeah. Okay, good. 
well, then this will work. It reminded me, you know, of the of the classic West Wing episode where Leo forces Josh Lyman to see a psychologist after the after the shooting. And and Josh basically says, like, well, am I fired now? You know, PTSD doesn't sound like something you can have if you work in the White House. And Leo says, you know, well, a guy fell in a hole and the doctor wrote a prescription and threw it down. And the rabbi, well, I think he says priest, but we'll go with rabbi (laughs) and threw it down. And the friend jumps in the hole and 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 the friend says, you know, I've been here before and I know the way out. And um, it reminded me of sort of that classic West Wing scene, which I know shows up in many other ways. But just this idea that when you're really down in a cave in the darkness, you need a friend to show you the way out. And that actually was a Christmas episode. And we're, we're, we're recording this Indeed. two days before Christmas. So that's cool. And One of that- the greatest West Wing episodes of all time. I think so. And actually, what your your link before to uh, Jewish metaphors around uh, caves is making me think, because uh, of course, I, I, were, I assume we're meant to think about Plato's cave, uh, parable of the cave. And now I'm thinking, wow, we got to take that back to all these things about both cave stories in the Talmud, but also just thinking about light. Like, what is that light of light of insight and light of enlightenment and light of the divine spark mean kind of against the the backdrop of Plato's caves. I'll be chewing on that some. Well, do you want to segue? You brought a you brought a teaching. Yeah. So, you know, I think for me, the moment that really stood out in this episode is when Eleanor is kind of unspooling the whole plot. And she says, like, yeah, you put us in here to torture each other, but in the end, we actually took care of each other and we succeeded in bringing us all together and forming forming this community, even with the setup that in fact, they should try and torture each other. Like, uh, you know, Michael brings that great chart showing how each of them is gonna torture the other one uh, in, his, in his proposal. And it reminded me of the Hasidic story about the difference between heaven and hell. And this idea that heaven and hell are the same place, but and there's this amazing buffet of food laid out for everyone, but the only uh, available utensils are these very long spoons um, that are that are basically too long for you to put the food in your own mouth. And so in hell, everyone starves because no one is willing to help each other. But in heaven, everyone feeds each other. That being in a community and taking care of your community can turn a place that was very hellish into a place that was more, that is more heavenly. And I think that's what's going on here also in this episode, that they are able to overcome the framework of torture that Michael sets up for them by really trying to take care of each other and and trying to be in a community. And I think one of the messages of the good place is that we can keep persevering in that, in that goal, that even when things are really dark and really difficult. If you can find other people to take care of and to take care of you, that may not solve all your problems. It certainly doesn't solve all their problems, but at least it will help potentially make your problems more bearable, which I think is a message of Judaism and of the good place. You know, I when you sent me a note that said this was the story you were going to mention, I thought, yeah, okay, that that's right. And as you're unspooling that one, now I'm thinking that it also highlights the idea that the things that we that, you know we usually think of like uh like Sean I think was originally saying or they were discussing in the at HQ that uh you know the bad place was usually thought of as you know lava monsters and you know 
lightning on your flesh and and other things like that. But the idea that it can actually be set in this place that looks that looks superficially to be beautiful and full of treats, but that that can actually accentuate. That's a much more subtle vision of what it means to be in a in a bad place. And and of course, you know, the way the the idea I'm sure the idea of the Hasidic story is that it's not really about heaven and hell. It's about it's about uh I believe it was uh, the great Belinda Carlisle who said, uh, you know, heaven is a place on earth. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that this pandemic has really taught me and probably a lot of other people, right, is just the way in which we all, how much we all rely on each other. But also, you know, we, in in my community, we had to go all virtual for services last week. There was a COVID outbreak and um, it was really hard. And there were members of our community writing to say, like, I need to be in services, like being together with my community, right? That's my heaven. That's the way I find spiritual nourishment. And that's also the way I deal with the fact that the world is really hard is by finding connections and, and ways to be together in community. And look, we, we've we had to do that on Zoom for a back and forth for a long time, which has been a, a true bummer. And bringing people back together in person has been like the greatest joy that I have experienced. But I think the other thing that we learned in this in this pandemic is maybe that it's not only about the place. You don't have to be in this place mm. to feel that sense of community and connectedness, right? That it's maybe not as much about the building or um, the location that you go to, but really about how can we as a community protect each other, nourish each other, connect to each other. And I think that's what they're coming to learn about in the good place also. So that makes me think about the fact that they're having this conversation in Eleanor's house. You know, it is in the good place and it's, you know, nicely decorated. It certainly is. Yeah, but it's not, you know, it's not the neighborhood center with all the the town square and it's not Tahani's mansion. It's just it's just kind of a place. And so you're right about that. And the other thing that's been like the great reframe of the season is from the issue we thought at the beginning, which is Eleanor's individual placement, you know, whether she's where she belongs. And now this very uh, clear sense that these four people with their all their different um, uh, dimensions of deficiency are like you can take any four people and they could become transformed by really being brought toward each other. And in some cases by by the worst of them somehow throwing a switch in in her mind that that caused them all to, uh, to kind of be in this process of drawn together. And I mean, I've talked about the fact that they're clearly not the four worst possible humans. We don't have any, you know, genocidal murderers in the bunch. Uh, uh, you know, we do have, I guess, Jason as an attempted uh, larceny <laughs> type person, but nothing really, you know, uh, worse than that. And so, so it's not quite that extreme, but they really, uh, uh, they randomly, right. There's no particular reason they didn't, they didn't actually set out to pick, you know, four evil people and use them to torture each other. They put just enough interesting partial goodness, you know, in there that they would be potentially that they could potentially at least annoy each other. And this is how it got transformed. They, they figured but out I think it. that's actually related to what you were talking about last week with Sari about the medium place, which is to say that like, if all of us belong in the medium place, really, then, or most of us, then most of us have the ability to either torture each other or to create community with each other and strengthen each other and bless each other. And, and I think there are four random humans and yes, there must be some, 
reason behind it. Michael had his chart and I, I'm sure I could have freeze framed and see what he wrote, <laughs> which I did not do. But I think that's sort of the point that it doesn't really matter which four people because everybody has the potential to be good to each other or torture each other. Well, I like also in the Hasidic story that the 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 main metaphor is food. It would be an even better story if it was a place where there was a lot of frozen yogurt, but you couldn't like, you, you know, you couldn't reach there the There might machine, be frozen yogurt. You know, the... It did not, they did not say. <laughs> so I was thinking about uh, this other thing that I, I wanted to bring in it, in, a, in a much more broad way. It doesn't work nearly as tightly as most of the texts that we have talked about. But in thinking about uh, teshuva generally and this idea of of change in a Jewish lens that has been the backbone of this whole podcast set of discussions that we've talked about this Maimonides text about, you know, returning to a situation where you're in before and how you, how you know you've changed. But the other place in the Torah is really at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And this episode was making me think about the fact that there is a very at the beginning of the Torah is this moment of decision, you could say moral decision of of Eve, of Chava, I'll call her Eve, although I usually like to use her Hebrew name, and where she is uh, faced with this decision and that she's really thinking about. She's got a little input. She's heard about this command from from this divine being who, uh, at least secondhand, she's heard, don't eat from this tree. And then she's got this snake who's, you know, trying to guide her, if that's the word, in a different way. And then there's this moment where she kind of looks and and there's a long verse where it describes the considerations that she thought about herself uh, before she took that and ate and then shared with, uh, with Adam. And I was thinking for a long time, oh, goodness, probably since the I think I was convinced of this the first time I started teaching this to high school kids, which would have been, boy, it's it's like something like 25 years ago or so, that I am just more and more in love with the idea that that she was supposed to she was supposed to eat it, that that was actually part of the the divine desire, if there is such a thing, you know, I'll say that metaphorically, and that that actually was sort of the right the right answer. And the idea that the simple Paris, the simple good place of this garden, which has all kinds of, you know, every tree that you would want and everything that you might want to eat is, uh, was really not a setup for permanence, but it was actually that Eve was the one who got that this was, that this was, this was a place you would be stuck in and you actually had to do something, uh, which maybe had a piece of bad in it, or at least was, you know, could be seen from the outside as bad in order to get out of it. Uh, I'm kind of paying off, I, should, I meant to say this before, I'm kind of with this thought paying off a debt. A few years ago, one of the bat mitzvah students at our synagogue gave this drash in which she she had the the parasha breshit, the Torah reading of the beginning of the Torah, and presented this story and said that uh, she felt that Eve had made the the right decision. And another congregant was actually, I think he was incensed with me. He felt that I had used this kid as like a mouthpiece for my heretical ideas about the Torah. <laughs> And, and demanded that we have like a study session to really probe this issue, which you never got around to um, before he uh, unfortunately passed away. So Ben, up in what I hope is the good place, I'm trying to pay back a debt. Now, Eve and Adam do not have a coming together uh, in the way the Torah, that's the problem with my interpretation of this story. So I can't say that this is like... No, but do you know sure my favorite midrash about this? Oh, please tell me. So this midrash was taught to me a very long time ago. She probably doesn't even remember that she taught it to me by Rabbi Ann Eversman of the Heschel School, where my children go to school, but who has been one of my great rabbinic mentors. And she taught me this midrash, and I will find you the source, um, that 
after Adam and Eve leave the garden and they have this whole big long life together with their children and all the problems with their children and their grandchildren and their great grandchildren at the end of their, their lives, God brings them back to the garden and says, you can go back. You want to go back? And they look at their life and, and all the good and all the bad. And they decide eh, better to live out here in the world where, you know, not everything is done for you and you have to kind of work for it and you experience it's kind of like the end of one of my favorite movies inside out right that the sadness and the difficult times make the good times feel sweeter and they walk away from the opportunity to walk back into the into the garden of eden so i think that at least there is one midrash that would agree with your interpretation that says that eve did the right thing that this is really we are meant to not live in the garden of eden we are meant to live out in the world And I will add one other thing, which you can keep in or cut out, which is that we study this story every year with our confirmation students. And this year's class got very into it. We asked the question of who's responsible for what happens. And we divide them up into groups and they have to argue about it. And this class got very into it. So much arguing, so much to the point where on our list of classroom norms, the last norm is we do not revisit the Adam and Eve debate (laughs) because it just starts up even more debate. Uh, going on. But there are definitely students in that class who think like, yeah, this is really what God wanted them to do, right? That God would never have put a tree in and said, don't touch it if God didn't want them to touch it. You're a parent. I'm a parent. If I put something really, you know, if I put something really great in front of my kids and I say, don't touch it, one second later, one of them is going to touch it. That's how it goes, right? That's a rule. So if I don't want them to touch it, I got to put it out of the way. And I think, you know, it's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So, you know, you want to be there and and uh, it's the kind of thing you should want. I also like, I think, in The Good Place that at this moment where we're trying to figure out what's next that's going to happen, they don't – I mean, Sean has the position of why don't we go back to the old the old thing where we just like – torture them with hot lava. And Michael is like, no, no, I want to do another, I want to do another version of this. But we don't really have a clear version. We certainly have no idea. There's no talk about what a good place actually is in the course of this discussion. Like there's sort of this situation, the real which which, you know, I'm thinking of as real life. And then there's this uh, bad place background. But and and I don't think, you know, when Judaism talks about the afterlife in a heavenly way. It's not a huge feature, really, of what we do. Neither is the hell, bad place kind of thing. But we do talk about Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, as kind of the where we return. But there isn't, I don't feel like there's, a, there's not a hugely vivid picture of that, although I'm sure we'll revisit that and talk about it more on, on future issues. Um, but I like that, you know, also Eleanor, it, when Michael points out that kind of the key to their figuring it out was an act of confession, it, it also sort of highlighted for me another uh, favorite interpretation of the, the Eden story that I have. Now, in the Torah, it looks very much like nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. You know, Just Adam, ask my confirmation students about that. Oh, yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, Adam says, you know, <laughs> she made, you know, if you hadn't given me her, you know, this never would have happened. And she says, don't look at me, the snake, you know, uh, the snake talked me into it. And they so they don't have the coming together that, that Jason and Eleanor and Chidi and Tahan have had. Uh, but my very favorite, probably, midrash about the Garden of Eden is uh, about Psalm 92, which we call the, which is known as the Psalm for Shabbat. 
And the Midrash says that this is was actually composed by Adam and Eve, or I probably should say even Adam, on the very first Shabbat. That they had sort of that uh, that that all of this, according to the Midrash, all of this stuff had happened like in the the few hours of their of their first day. It was Friday afternoon. They found the tree. They ate it. They got punished. They were going to be thrown out. And that either the the all of creation or maybe Shabbat itself interceded and said, you know, they need to. They need to at least spend one Shabbat here to sort of know what it is, or else the whole world will will disintegrate and uncreate itself. And they imagine that that even Adam spend that Shabbat kind of reflecting on what it is that happened and who they are as moral beings. And then they they write this song, which they kind of sing on that Shabbat, and it's kind of a, a thing they preserve on the way out. And they the rabbis there are riffing on this opening line, which says basically it's it's good to own up or it's good to confess. Often it's translated it's good to give thanks. Tov lehodot ladonai. And I like this alternative vision where they express a kind of sense of responsibility. And yes, it triggers their leaving, but it really opens up more possibilities. And I think in this episode, like, you know, we've watched into season two, so we know that there's some great stuff coming. Um, but I think even if we hadn't, we would have to assume that the uh, that what's coming based on the, the cliffhanger at the end of the show is going to be something really interesting and it's going to, and has to somehow be moral, even more moral growth. Like they've done a lot clearly up till now. Maybe, maybe it's that Eleanor has done a lot, but the rest of them haven't really. And so one of them's kind of ahead of the game and clearly the show should go in a direction where they all where they all go somewhere one thing that is apparent about eleanor to to go with your interpretation of the of the adam and eve story is that she's willing to work for it she's not saying well you should just let me stay in this good place she tries really hard to become a better person Mm. and she works really hard and i think that is a little bit of of the message of the Garden of Eden story, which is like, yeah, you could live in a world where sort of everything is is laid out for you, but where you know where's the where's the fun in that, right? That maybe the true good place is a place where you may have to work for some things, but then you get the benefit of reaping those rewards. And that's not to say that like you know everyone who works hard will have a great life. Like we know we know that that's not true um, in the world, and that there are some incredibly difficult and and frustrating and hard things about, about the world we live in. But I think on balance, I relate to the Eve who doesn't want to go back to the garden of Eden and say like, you know, here, I'm just going to like laze around in the good place because I deserve it. But rather I should be an Eleanor, a person who looks around and says like, how can I do it? How can I be better? How can I, how can I learn more and grow more, even though she's dead, right? Like (laughs) they're all dead. That's, I mean, that's the other thing about this show all the way to the end is like, they are all dead. Yet she's still interested in in trying to be a better person. And if we want to go really, I suppose, you know, deep on a different level, there is this shadow of death over the Garden of Eden too, because they're being told there, Adam and Eve, that if they eat from this fruit, they're going to die. So they don't die instantly. Now we're Jewish, so we're not we're not subscribing to this sense that the 
the soul is, you know, dead from the moment they eat it, that there is a kind of death that they're living in. That's not a that's not a Jewish point of view the way it it might be in certain Christian interpretations. But now it's sort of coming back to me that you're right, that in in a sense you could you could read the Garden of Eden. And I think actually even some Kabbalistic sources do is like there was a, a dimension of their life that disappeared, even though they didn't physically die, that now they have to come back and, and get and their souls have to work for. I was also, as you were talking, I was also, as I was looking at my notes that um, there is, you know, the, the, the most, one of the most important lines in the aftermath of eating the fruit is where uh, it says that the divine is walking through the garden, kind of looking for the two people and says, where are you? Isn't that what it is? Uh, Ayeka, where are yeah, you? Yeah, where are you? And uh, just, I was struck by this line, which I wrote down, but didn't really think of relating to it, where Tahani's giving her little speech about like, <laughs> what has happened to me? Like, how did I possibly end up in this situation? And she says, with a Tahani, you know, and it just kind of flies by, but I like that, you know, where am I? Very, uh, it's very Hasidic Tahani there. Again, I'm not saying at all, because I think actually the, the the differences between at least the kind of standard way the Torah looks at the Garden of Eden story is clearly not the way this goes. I mean, Eleanor seems so, she is so committed by the end, you know, she, this whole episode, right? Even a couple episodes ago, she's been clear the direction that she's going, okay. you know, which is certainly not the case when you end the, the Garden of Eden is really just the launching point for everything that comes later in the Torah. And uh, so I didn't want to stretch that too far, but I think there's a, a these like intriguing elements that I guess seem parallel to me. You know, I was thinking about the the big reveal moment when, when, Eleanor realizes that she's in the bad place and that all along she's been tricking. And I'm thinking to myself, like, are there any Jewish texts that like would really speak to this moment when you basically have an epiphany and you realize something you thought the entire time was actually wrong. And the, the one thing I could come up with, and, and it's, again, it's not a, it's not a perfect fit, but it's, I think, okay, is when Moses goes out and the Torah says, and he sees, he noticed a, a an Egyptian taskmaster beating one of the Israelites. And, and you have to ask yourself, well, he grows up in Egypt. How did he not notice until this moment that the taskmasters are beating the Israelites, right? Like that's just part of daily life in Egypt. And and my teacher, Rabbi, Rabbi Sharon Brous, talks about this as a, a moment of epiphany for Moses, that he sort of realizes that everything that he grew up with in Egypt is wrong and that he's been on the wrong side this entire time, right? He's been on the Egypt side and he has to actually switch and be on the Israelite side. And that's the moment that kind of propels him to kill the taskmaster, leave Egypt, you know, eventually the burning bush and returning to Egypt. And, and that's the moment that sort of pushes forward the history of the Jewish people, not just Moses's own history. And so I thought about that in relation to this moment where Eleanor realizes she's been working towards something that is wrong. She now has to work towards something else. And even though she's still on, I think, the right side of history in, in both in both cases, her entire life and the entire orientation of the show is changed by this one moment and by this one realization. So I don't know if that feels like it works for you, but that moment felt it felt resonant to sort of what happens to Moses. 
You know, it it does it does in a way. I we we are again recording this, and it's too bad people won't necessarily be hearing it right at this moment. As we're going to read that story in the Torah this week that you're mentioning of Moses, and there is a lot. <laughs> yes, of- we are. I, I can't believe I didn't think of that until, we, until you said it. Oops, the, bad rabbi. No, no, but there are a lot of parallels between. I think I've always thought that there are parallels between the the opening of Genesis and the opening of Exodus. And that Moses, as you're saying, in this actual situation, is kind of replaying what what uh, what Eve, in this case, went through. And and this and this opening of the eyes actually is one of those things. There are a lot of callbacks to the initial creation in the birth of Moses. And you're right, his going out of the castle, uh, out of the palace of Pharaoh. I hadn't thought about this. It's exactly like they're escaping. The, or being thrown out from the Garden of Eden, and I would. Okay, I would this is this is possibly pushing it too far, right? But they think they're in the Garden of Eden, and really, what is happening in this moment is actually Eleanor saying, "Like, oh no, this is our this is our Exodus moment. We have to find redemption because we realize we're in the bad place, and we better figure out how not to end up in a world of eternal torture." Right? No, okay, that's maybe pushing it too far. No, I. The first season is like the first book of the Torah, and the second season is like the second book of the Torah. I think the metaphor falls apart when you get to Leviticus, <laughs> but it's working at this moment, so I'll take it. Well, I will totally take it because what I was going to say is that if you if you isolate the moment, so so one of the things that's kind of neat in the episode is where you see the the argument devolving into the the chaos after, um, I guess, after Real Eleanor comes back in and kind of complicates the issue, and there's this descent into screaming. And there's this few seconds where Eleanor is looking around, and she's kind of processing it, and she has her realization. And the equivalent of that in the Torah, in the Garden of Eden, is that there's been a lot of dialogue, and and suddenly there's this like spotlight freeze moment on Eve. And it describes three things as she's kind of... It says that Eve looked, or she saw, uh, the woman saw, that it was good, the tree for eating, and that it was like, you know, really delightful to look at, and that it was really interesting or pleasant to think about. And so there's this first this kind of moment where she uses the they Tori uses the language of she saw that it was good, which calls back the first chapter where God creates everything in a perfect order and everything's how it's supposed to be. But then she kind of pushes on and she integrates this kind of physical sense of what's pleasurable with this uh, this last thing, which is that it's really interesting to think about the tree and what it means and all of that. And that, in a way, tracks Eleanor's development, too, from going from this kind of pleasure-seeking, self-centered person to, huh, this really this really presents a lot of interesting things to think about. And I like to think that in that moment, she's like, I wonder if the tree is not here to get us to sort of think about whether we should be here and go. And that's how I really like that it links now how your Exodus interpretation explains that, and uh, and I think you know Eleanor. It's nice how in the in the show Eleanor says, you know, I've got this, and she says, fine, you know, Chidi and I will go. And she's like, you're not. And it's interesting; it's the opposite. She says, you're not going to send us anywhere. Like, there's nowhere else for us to go. It's all happening. <laughs> I don't know what your plan is, but like, nobody's getting on any train. There's no train. There's no other place. <laughs> okay, as you're talking, I thought of another way, another thing. We are really going to town here, moment, yeah. <laughs> which is, in some ways, this is the Noah story. Michael says, I'm going to scrap my creation and I'm going to start again. There's no real Noah here to to start again. But Eleanor actually, with her note in Janet's mouth, is like, no, no, no I'm not going to let you just you can't you can't recreate the whole world without 
some consequences. So there's going to be consequences and I'm going to figure it out. And so, you know, you have this, you have this moment where Michael in the role of God is like, I hate these people. I have to destroy, I have to destroy them all. And Eleanor is, uh, Eleanor, maybe in the, in a different reaction than Moses is like, no, 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 I'm not going to, I'm not going to let you do that without trying to save my people, right? Trying to save my, my Chidi and Tahani and, um, and Jason and, and Eleanor. I think you just teased our season two opening now, which is awesome. (laughs) You know, there's just, the Torah is everywhere if you really want to look for it. That's what I've learned. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Anywhere else you want to go? You want to go watch the first, I stopped because I was like, I got to go to bed, but uh, (laughs) you want to go watch the first episode of season two again, just to like become fully absorbed in it. That's what happened. I I totally was uh, was caught in that, and I was just I was watching with my daughter, and she was laughing. And and uh, the I will tell you that uh, the opening it's a two parter, so it's like it's a double it's a double length. So it's a great. I started to rewatch that one too. Well, we have set up a ton. I I love actually what we have uh, spun out and how playfully we have uh, thrown some ideas over stories that I'm sure you and I have studied and learned and taught, you know, millions of times. And yet I find myself thinking something new about it, which is which is great. And uh, and thank you to Mike Sure for writing this episode, which got us to think about these couple of things in some new ways. And, he really is. He really is so brilliant because you know. It's got Parks and Rec and The Office and this. Some people are just blessed with real with real gifts. <laughs> Clearly the gift of prophecy, I guess, is what we would call that in a Abraham Joshua Heschel sense. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> well, Rebecca, it is great to talk to you once again. And thank you for doing this together for another episode. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you also for really pushing us and my and my fellow co-hosts, I think I could speak for them to to get on board and, and make this happen because this has been just a real light in a really difficult time. So thank you and and happy new year to all who are listening. I don't think I think this will be the last episode of 2021. Yes. Yeah, probably. So if you are listening as they're coming out, happy new year from all of us. May it be a brighter 2022. In uh, and you may you all be in the good place. <laughs> Amen. And that's all for another episode of Tove. Thank you for listening. We covered a lot of ground this time, so if you're intrigued by the many references we brought in from Jewish texts, head over to tovegoodplace.com for show notes. Our next episode will be our end of season one special, and you can make sure not to miss it by subscribing on your app of choice. That also helps get the podcast out farther into the world, which you can also do by giving us a good rating and sharing about Tove on your social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Tove Good Place. If you've got ideas for us for season two or any questions, drop a note to Tove at tovegoodplace.com. I'm John Spira-Savet, at RabbiJS3 on both Twitter and Instagram, and Rebecca Rosenthal is at RabbiRebeccaBakes on Instagram. Thanks again for letting us talk in front of you for a while. Now, go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.